I come here for all these wonderful people too. Hey, Carrie, come up here for a second, please. Stand, yeah. Anybody know who this is? So let me tell you a story real fast. So this is my wife over there, for those of you that don't know that yet. And she's holding my baby, trying to get him to sleep. That's why she's dancing over there. Um, I got home from Denver a couple days ago, and within 20 minutes, I could tell there was something different about my wife. Is it okay if I tell this story? <laughs> there was about 20 minutes... After being home for 20 minutes, I could tell there was something different. I was like, you seem just like you have way more energy, less preoccupied, like you're just more here, like there's something different about you. And then all of a sudden we started thinking about it and we figured it out and it was like, it's because of her. So this is Carrie Ellis. She moved here five months ago from Visalia and she used to be a fifth grade? Fifth through eighth grade teacher. And she came in, and we were like, hmm, you know, we, like we do to all of you, but we just never tell you until, like, the, that's, okay, that's half true. Um, but we could just tell right away that there was just, we're like, we, we need her. And so you'll never guess who it was, but somebody started instigating, kind of pulling her in, and, and I'm not going to point any fingers at Betty Fry, but Betty has just this incredibly in tune, attuned awareness to people's identity and fit and, and where people can flourish in community, doesn't she? So, so Betty locked on to Carrie, and, and we all did too. So where I'm going with this is Carrie is, fortunately for all of us, stepping into a huge role with us to be the coordinator for all our kids' stuff, which means that it's going to get less and less crazy, more and more structured, and I know, so we... We were blessed to have Shara for, well, the whole time that Sarah and I were here. And then, so we had this huge gap where it was like, Shara mo was moving on to other things. And then, so Sarah and I stepped in and we tried to just not let it totally fall through the cracks. And yeah, thank you and thank you. So give her one more hand. So this is Carrie, just so you know who you're going to be sending your children to. So anything you want to say? Um, speech, like speech. No, I'm just kidding. No. Uh, just a little snippet. Uh, I actually grew up in Los Osos all through the 80s and the 90s. Um, and my husband and I moved to Visalia and Fresno area. We were there for 10 years. Uh, we just moved back this summer because our little one, who you probably see running around with me all the time, um, he has asthma. And so that brought us back to the Central Coast. And it was very God-led. And um, I actually quit teaching after 10 years to stay at home with the boys. So I lost a big part of that identity of myself, and when we moved over here, I stepped into a whole new stay-at-home mom role, but I still like was missing that connection with the students and that planning lesson part of me that I've been struggling with a bit, and even before we moved, I just felt like this part of me say, like, you're going to start up like and help with a kid's program somewhere, and then God really led us to Coastlands Vineyard. It was totally God who brought us here and then they had a need for kids, and it's just been like one step after another, and it's been a wild ride, and it's been awesome. Um, and I just feel very led to be here and to take over the kids. And so um, I'm Carrie, and if you guys have suggestions, or um, hopefully I'll get to meet you guys face-to-face -face soon, but I'm really excited um, to be here. 
And, and I want to really quick, well, so, yes, Betty, and then I want to say something. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, anybody. If you can pass a background check, you love Jesus and you're good with kids, then you are welcome. Okay, can I, I probably should say that, right, even if it's a little awkward to say. Um, but... One just really quick thing that, that Sarah and I thought was really cool. When we had Carrie over with us and we were dialoguing about all this, one of the last things I had to leave as they were wrapping up the conversation, but I heard her say as I was walking down the stairs, she said, I feel like you guys are giving me a piece of my identity back. And I was like, see, that's what it's about. This isn't about us trying to like plug her into a job to fill a need we have. This is about God has wired her in such a way that there's a piece of her identity that fits within our community exactly how we need it. And it's just a beautiful thing, so... Yeah, that's what we've seen come together. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We love that we get to do life with you all. Some of you we know better than others, and some of you guys are visiting from afar, like even Minnesota. Welcome. But um, yeah, it's just we, we love this. We love that, that we're all in this together. So wanted to bring you all. I'm Chris, again, for those of you that I haven't got to meet yet. But wanted to just bring you in really quick to what we've been doing the last few months, actually. We've been talking about brilliance and beauty, the life and personality of Jesus. Just looking to the scriptures at the Gospels and saying, okay, Jesus was more than just a theological idea, more than a historical person. He is actually a real, living, 3D person, and we want to get to know him. So we've been looking at some of the episodes, you could say, in scripture where Jesus is personality and his uniqueness and his intelligence, all, they shine through in really fascinating ways. I won't give you a recap of everything we've been doing. You can go to the website and find most of it, but last week was particularly fun for me, and I, I wanted to connect it with some of the songs we were singing. There was, there was a song that was like the second to, or third to last one, and it said something about mountains falling and things shaking and stuff, and you remain high above it all. And we sang that over and over, and I thought, you know, there's, there's a beauty in, in that understanding. That there is a sense in which, yes, God does remain high above it all. But then at the same time, we need to not just hold on to that and forget that the words of the last song are true, too, that I want to know your heart, I want to go closer with you, I want to go deeper with you, that that's not just us singing to God, but that's God's heart towards us. And so, in a sense, yes, God remains high above it all, but in another sense, Jesus, the whole point of the incarnation is that Jesus stepped into what we know as existence and met us in it face to face. And that's so beautiful. This God that was high above it all says, no, but I refuse to just stay there. Because I want to be down in your midst. I want to be right there knowing your heart. And that's what we saw a glimpse of as we talked last week about John 11, right? The, the raising of Lazarus. And it's that long verse that you will want us people know. Jesus wept. And what we talked about was that I think a lot of scholars, a lot of our medieval theologians, especially like Augustine and Aquinas, probably had trouble with this because their ideas of God were all about distance and about power and about unaffectedness. And they have all these big words, impassibility, and all these things to say, God is so high above it all. But God is never touched by us. God is never moved by us. They would call God the unmoved mover. And we have these ideas of God, and then what do we do with a Jesus who is God that is with Mary at his feet, and he just sees her agony, and he weeps over it. 
So that's what we're trying to hold together. And one of the statements I made, I quoted my friend Paul, he said, he said, Jesus did not weep because he was human, but rather we humans weep because we're made in the image of God. So yes, God is high above it all, but at the same time, God says, no, I'm right here, you're at my feet, and I'm in this with you in a profound, profound way. So we need to kind of hold that together. This week, we're going to look at something a little different. We're going to build on something we did a long time ago. We're going to spend some time playing for a few minutes in John chapter 2. And I want to propose that these two stories in John chapter 2, it's Jesus' first sign, Jesus' first miracle. Anybody remember what it was? It takes place at a, at a wedding, and Jesus does what? He turns water into wine. And you're like, wow, if you're going to kick off a miracle session? Sure, that's one way to do it. So the first sign that Jesus gives that he is God incarnate is he turns water into wine. What I want to hopefully help us see is that that story actually helps us interpret what Jesus is doing as he cleanses the temple. That we won't understand what's going on in the temple unless we keep in mind the story of the water into wine. So let me pray, and then we'll take a look at it. Coming over to this side of the room a little bit. I don't like standing in front of the projector. But yeah, Jesus, thanks. Thanks that you could have remained high above it all. Thanks that you could have remained what we interpret as distant and, and disengaged. But thank you that you long so deeply to know us. And thank you that you not only long to know us, but you long to keep our relationship fresh and engaged. So would you meet us this morning as you long to? Would we meet you halfway? Speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, your favorite thing is to reveal Jesus in us. So spirit of truth, spirit of adoption, come and open up our eyes, shed light on things going on in us, things you want us to see. Help us to see our place in Jesus' relationship with his Father. All right, so let's take a look at this real quick. So if you have Bibles, anybody bring Bibles to church anymore? Yeah, some of you guys do. Anybody bring iPhones? Haven't you noticed how many people actually say the word phone anymore? There's no such thing as a phone, it seems like. Everything is an iPhone, even if it's not an iPhone. So interesting. But anyways, <laughs> Al, we're not having the conversation now, my man. <laughs> you're, of course, you're free to disagree, but don't right now. So take out your, your iBible. Oh, I need to, anybody seen that video on YouTube, the iBible? Oh, man, go home after church, go YouTube the iBible. I'll, I'll show it to you some morning, all right? It is, it's awesome. I want to get one of these. Um, open up your Bibles, John chapter 2, verse 13. Shall we start there? Yeah, let's start there, verse 13. Hey, let me help you see this a little better. All right, so the Passover of the Jews was at hand, which is something that I don't know much about, honestly, but I think would be helpful to learn about someday. 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. How many of you picture kind of like a shopping mall scenario, right? It's kind of like you got your H&M and Aeropostale or however you pronounce it and um, Embarecrombie and Fitch and Embarecan Eagle, all these different places. But you have all these places, it's like a shopping mall and Jesus comes in and it says that he pours out, so, <laughs> all right, let's just read it kind of like an encyclopedia first, and then let's actually look at it like a story. How's that? All right? I, I, did you notice I got sucked into the encyclopedia reading right there? I totally got sucked into it. So we'll just stay in it. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Right? With probably that much emotion or less his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Is that all we have? Is that 22? There's a little more, right? Let's, let's go back to this, actually. Let's, let's hang on here. So let me do my best to give you a little bit of a picture of what's happening here. All right? It's going to be weak because this is so electric. This is so overwhelming. This is so dramatic. Anybody watch the show Parenthood? Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Sarah was watching Parenthood a couple nights ago. I was like, baby, how can you do that? They inject every tiny, monotonous, ridiculous thing with so much drama. Well, take the drama of Parenthood, multiply it infinitely, and that's maybe what we're working with here, all right? So think about this for a minute to set the stage. The temple was not this tiny little, it was not like this auditorium. This was a building they had been Wrap your minds around this. Working on for 46 years. Anybody older than 46 in here? You don't have to admit if you don't want to, but yeah. So imagine that you and this whole crew of people have been working on one single building for 46 years and it's not completed yet. It would probably be a little bit notable, would you say? This is not some tiny, adorable little thing. This is not like Zoolander. What is it? This is like this huge, daunting structure that would be central to everything, their life, their worship. It would be what everything is built around. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and it's Passover. So it's Passover time. So the, the closest thing we could do, I hope I don't break our microphone. Imagine, anybody been to Willow Creek Church in Chicago? Where is it, South Barrington? Yeah, so you guys know Chicago. Willow Creek, a little bit bigger than Coastlands, tiny bit, right? It's like Coastlands in 80 million years. So imagine Willow Creek. How many people attend Willow Creek on a Sunday? 20,000, that's all? Okay. So imagine a normal Sunday Willow Creek, 20,000 people. Imagine Easter Sunday Willow Creek. Where would you park? Right? They'd have to have a tram to like shuttle you. Just, so that's what I want you to envision for a minute. Imagine like 25, 30,000 people, the electricity in the air. Just the, the environment, the atmosphere is charged because there's so much going on. Put yourselves there for a minute. That kind of starts to scratch the surface of what's going on in this temple scene. This is not just like a quiet little service. 
So a young man comes up. Some people don't know who he is. Some people have maybe heard that he just turned water into wine. That's probably all they know about him. He steps up to the microphone. Now, this is going to be weird because there's two microphones, and I don't know what's going to happen. But he steps up to the microphone, and he's about to give a message, an Easter message. And there's cattle, there's livestock all around, and there's pigeons and doves in cages. So imagine that there's noise from that. Like, we're like, get these kids back in the room because we need quiet. So imagine if we're, like, having church with livestock right now. And this young man walks up to the microphone. And you're like, ooh, what's he going to say for his Easter message? Never seen this guy before. And he takes the microphone off of the stand. Sorry, Bree. I guess it's church property. I hope. Takes the microphone off of the stand. He yanks the cord out of the wall and he begins to swing it around his head, making whipping noises at the feet of the hundreds, maybe thousands of livestock in their midst as these 30,000 people are about to partake in their Easter message. Now, I'm not going to start doing that. Did I lose my other microphone? Can you even imagine, what word would you use to describe what Jesus has just instigated? Pandemonium, maybe? What would you be doing? Would you be like, oh, I wonder what his first point's going to be? You would be thinking, that cow will hurt. That, whatever it is, get out of the way. It would be utter chaos, wouldn't it? Who caught that? I totally did on accident. Oh, man. I'm, I'm getting slow, and my wife's getting quicker. It would be absolute pandemonium. By the way, the word pandemonium, just a little side note. You know where that word comes from? Plethora of demons. Pan-demonium. Have you ever felt like your life feels like pandemonium? Hmm. Pan. Panacea. Pan-whatever. Remember? Pan, it's like this multiplicity of, multitude of. Demonium. Pandemonium is not a good thing. But anyways, that's a little side note. So Jesus is literally starting a riot. So he's whipping around, and I am not going to do this, but imagine he's literally, he takes these cords and he makes a whip and he's whipping around and these animals are running everywhere. People are trying not to get trampled. Can you picture it? I'm not acting it out. Anybody else want to? Anybody want to come whip us? So I assume that Jesus was not whipping the people. I assume he wasn't even whipping the animals. But don't you think that just the noise of the whipping on the ground would be enough to just send everybody careening for the doors for the exit? So who would be left in there? People that are crazy? Not many people would be left in there. It says, he, now, now listen to this. Now this is what's beautiful. So in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this chaos, Jesus turns to the people that what? He told those who sold the pigeons. The pigeons would have been in cages, right? So it's this moment of insanity, of chaos, of, of energy. And you picture Jesus still maintaining his composure and his tenderness. 
turning to the people standing next to the bird cages. Oh, by the way, take those things out. It's like this, this moment of tenderness in the midst of just pandemonium, which I think is beautiful. But there's a couple things that, that I think I often misconstrued in this story, and this is what I hope that we can maybe see. How many of you, when you read this story, first of all, we call it the cleansing of the temple. We think that maybe Jesus is angry because they're selling things, right? Maybe there's like some exploitation going on, but Jesus actually says he stops people. In other stories, in the other Gospels, it says that he stops them from bringing their, some translations say merchandise, but it actually meant vessels. He stopped them from bringing their vessels in, the things that were used for the sacrifices. So he's saying, don't bring these things in for the sacrifices. What is he saying? It's okay. Cell phones ring all the time. iPhones ring all the time. He says, don't bring these things in here. Interesting. Now, if you read in the book of Mark, so let me ask you this real quick. How many of you picture Jesus kind of walking up to the temple, seeing everything that's going on, and then all of a sudden just getting kind of triggered and just going on this rampage. Any of you ever kind of pictured it that way? It's like Jesus is walking along, and he's like, oh, hey, there's the temple, and all of a sudden he sees what's going on, and he's like, turns into the Hulk kind of, right? It's like, and he wakes up and he's just wearing shorts. But that we get kind of this picture of Jesus just overcome with insanity and with, with rage at what's going on. Like he's out of control almost, Anybody associate this story with anger, honestly? How many of you associate it with anger? The word for anger, which is a really funny word, it's O-R-G-E. Orga. (laughs) Um, We're not going to do any more uh, (laughs) etymology there, but this word for anger, O-R-G-E, is not used anywhere in the passage. It uses the word zeal, passion, of course, but it never once tells us that it has anything to do with anger. Now, maybe is there, there's some anger involved? It's possible. But it's not this Jesus gets flipped like the Hulk into this place of craziness. In the book of Mark, it actually tells us, in Mark 11, verse 11, it says that Jesus went to Jerusalem one evening, walks up to the temple, takes a look, and then he goes back to Bethany to be with his friends. Then the next day, he returns to Jerusalem. Now, what does that mean? Oh, and by the way, on his way into Jerusalem, there's a fig tree that he passes. Anybody ever caught that before? Jesus sees this fig tree, and what does he do? He curses it. Anybody ever thought, well, that's weird? That's kind of random. Like, Jesus is really just getting more and more out of control. The longer he lives, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more he just gets triggered. Now he's cursing his own beautiful little creations. But do you know what fig trees represented in the first century Jewish mind? The religious institution. Jesus was doing something deeply symbolic as he walked past the fig tree and cursed it. And he noticed, remember, it says the fig tree was not bearing any fruit. So Jesus says, may no fruit come from you again. And then he walks into the temple. He takes his whip and he drives everybody out. What did the temple represent to all of these people? 
What are you here for this morning? Besides to see your friends and free coffee and granola bar. What are you here for? To encounter God. What did the temple represent to all of them? The place in which you encounter God, right? So Jesus, he goes, he sees what's going on. He goes and gathers himself, composes himself, comes up with a plan, and the next day, calculated, precise, very aware of what he was doing, totally in control to the point where he even sees the pigeons and says, hey, let them out of here. I don't want them to get hurt. And he drives everybody out of the place that they were coming to worship God, the place that they had been worshiping God for how many Hundreds of years? Maybe thousands? There was hardly ever any time in the Israelites' history where the temple was not associated with worship, correct? Now, let me put some connections out there for you and see what you think. Going back to the water and wine. We're doing really good on time. Going back to the water and the wine. We can assume that there were what that the wine was held in that ran dry? What? Probably some wine jars, right? Or some kind of contraption to hold the wine. But did you notice in, I think it's verse 6, that John tells us as he's telling the story, it says that there were these Jewish jars, stone jars, used to hold water for the purification rituals going on. Don't you think that if Jesus was going to make more wine, he would have used the wine jars? But he points over to these jars over here that were used for Jewish rituals, and he says, fill those up with water. And as they take them to the MC of the wedding, they realize they're filled with what? So wine to them would have represented many things, but of the few things, a few things it would represent would be joy, life, abundance. Those are good things, hey? So Jesus is taking these old, dry, maybe cracked stone jars that are filled with water used for some religious purposes. He says, fill them with water, which actually would defile them for their purposes temporarily, and then fill them with wine, or Jesus fills them with wine. He takes something old, used for something else, and fills it with something new. Okay? You guys making the connection yet? Jesus steps into the temple where everybody was assuming they were coming to meet God, and he sends them all out on this rampage. He is the only one left standing, we can imagine, in the temple. Is it possible that they are the same thing packaged in two different ways? How many of you guys are like, Chris, I've known this like the whole time. Why are you? Are you making the connection? Jesus is saying, wait a minute, let's take this and let's fill it with something that actually has life. Let's fill it with new meaning. I'm going to fill it with myself. You thought that encountering God looked like this? Well, let me show you what God has always had in mind. You know what I see in the John chapter 2 stories? This, I don't, didn't know how to really 
put this in writing, but think about this statement for a minute. John chapter 2 shows us that there are some things that Jesus refuses to do without our participation. And there are other things that Jesus insists on doing without our permission. Can I say that again? There are some things that Jesus refuses to do without our participation. Because couldn't Jesus just looked at the jars and said, oh, be filled with wine? Couldn't he have just willed wine there? But he didn't, did he? He waited for the servants to take part, and even for his mother to take initiative, and he, he waited for their participation before his miracle took place. Did you realize there are some miracles that are actually waiting for you to step in to the chain before they will actually be activated? That Jesus is waiting for your participation before his glory will be revealed? And yet on the other side, in the temple, Jesus says, you think it's always happened this way. You think that the way to the Father is by sacrificing these animals, by bringing these offerings. Let me show you this. Get all of this out of here. I am going to fill this with myself, and I'm not going to wait for your permission. You're actually going to kill me for it. But this is what I want, and I will not take no for an answer. Think about this for a moment, and then we'll, we'll open up for some feedback, and I'll give you some thoughts on how this lands for me, at least. What happened when Jesus, he's up on the cross, and he breathes his last? He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathes his last. What happens to the temple? Huge, like, yards and yards, probably maybe as high as the ceiling, right? This huge curtain gets what? ripped in half. Now there's a lot of symbolism there. I mean, some people say that it has to do with just like they would tear their clothes in mourning, right? So some people say that it was the father kind of tearing his clothes in, in mourning. Often people will say that the temple curtain was torn so that we can do what? So that we can enter in, right? Is that important? But let me ask you this. If the curtain temple is torn, not only can we enter in, but something else crucial can happen. What? Whatever was in there can come out. So Jesus is just totally messing with categories here. He's saying this thing that you thought was the way to connect with God because the temple was the place where heaven and earth met together. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the place where heaven the control room, the throne room of earth meets with earth. And Jesus says, this place where heaven and earth meet is no longer in this building, no longer through the system of sacrifices. It's in my very body, life, and being. And I come to share that all with you. And it's so powerful. couple questions for you, and then we'll, we'll get some, some feedback. I wanted to see how I... Have you ever had a period in life where, where you connect with God in a certain way, and there's some consistency to it, and then all of a sudden it runs dry? Where you maybe are engaged in a certain spiritual activity or, or spiritual practice or quiet time and there's just life to it and God's meeting you and then all of a sudden you kind of come one day, you, you show up 
and it's just totally void of life. Has anybody ever gotten to that point and you just kind of given up or been tempted to give up? Have you ever been involved in something that just kind of gets stale, maybe? Is it possible that in the same way Jesus wanted to reconfigure the temple around himself, that sometimes Jesus wants to move on in the ways that he engages with us and we get locked in to certain forms, certain structures, certain activities? And Jesus is like, hey, reading your Bible is great, but what if I'm out here? What if I'm over there? Have you guys experienced that? The question I had on my heart this morning is, how does Jesus want to encounter us now? Where is Jesus saying he wants to meet you today? They didn't really expect Jesus to be able to make wine out of water, did they? They didn't know what he was going to do. And maybe the place that Jesus wants to encounter you is the place you would least expect it. So we're going to do a little sharing, maybe even brainstorming. One of my questions for you would be, because wine and Jesus both symbolized life, didn't they? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And wine represented life, abundance, joy, fullness. So let me ask you this. Have you made the connection yet between the activities in which you engage and the life you fill in them and the presence of God? Or are there some things that you're like, well, this is just what I do, but this is where I connect with God. So let me ask you guys, what are some things, one of the things, you guys, those of you that are visiting, we love to get feedback and input and hear what people are processing, what the Holy Spirit is saying to everyone, and sometimes I kind of hijack that by asking specific questions as well. But the question I have for you is, what are the activities in which you feel a profound sense of life, regardless of whether or not you recognize God's presence? in the midst of it. Anybody mind sharing? All right, let me ask you this way. I'm going to ask you more clear. When do you feel most alive? Let's just pause there. Think for a moment. When do you feel most alive? Anybody mind sharing with us? How many of you are filtering your answer based on spirituality? How many of you guys find yourself like kind of putting it through a grid of how spiritual is this? Can I say it right now? So, so let's, yeah, um, Sarah put her hand up. But yeah, so this is the question for you. When do you feel most alive? Sarah Shotwell Provenzano. It feels like wine more than water. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, somebody else. And what we ask is that when you share from up here, I should have made you do too, but we ask that when you share, because we don't want this to just be a, Dialogue, we want it to be a whole conversation. So will you stand and will you kind of face the majority of the room when you share, please? So um, Carrie and then Brenda, we're going to go boom, boom. Yeah, that's Sarah. Sarah. Wait, so that can be spiritual? But you don't bring your Bible to like, do you sit there and, okay, I'm sorry. I'll pull back a little bit, but. You experience the presence of God in the midst of playdates with other moms and kids. How many people 50 years ago would have been able to say that and not feel weird about it? (laughs) Maybe a small majority or a small portion, but it's just interesting to think 
about expanding the ways in which God meets us. Yeah, Brenda, what were you going to say? Will you stand and, and yeah. Please. I can't play favorites. But everyone who won't be able to hear you. I don't want them to miss out. Um, Torah, and then we're going to change, well, so, you know what, do this real quick, actually, because some of you are, are, are kind of getting away with just being able to be passive right now, which is totally fine, but will you turn to someone around you, I'm going to, some of you guys are going to really hate this, and some of you guys are going to be glad for a chance to verbally process, but hopefully you at least know something about the person around you, but just turn for a moment. To the person next to you, if you don't have somebody next to you, then get next to somebody. And just, if you don't know them, introduce yourself real quick, but share with them. What is it for you? That way everybody gets a chance to hear from one person and and share with one person. Just what is that thing that makes you, what is that thing that makes you feel alive? Where does God meet you? All right, I have another question for you all. All right, are you ready for my question? No? Yes, here's my question. When was the last time that you gave yourself permission to do this thing you just described without feeling guilty or apologetic to the people around you? Whoa, it got really quiet all of a sudden. No, just because you're trying to be polite, right? The question was, the question was, when was the last time that you engaged in such activity that you just described without feeling guilty or apologetic to the people around you? Anybody struggle with that? No? I hope not. If you do, just something to be aware of. Another question would be, do you know when the next time is that you're going to get to do it? Anybody surprised by... Let's, let's hear from a couple. Anybody maybe heard some surprising answers? I'm like, whoa, I never really thought about that one. But. And let's, let's play the let's see who can get the furthest out of the box game. What were some, what were some things that came up in your guys's? Yeah, Brie. That's awesome. I, see, what, I think what happens with the, really quick, I think what happens with the distant God is we get so caught up in this idea that this distant God is, the only word I can really think of is hell-bent. That's the only, like, we, this, we get the idea that the distant God is so consumed with his own glory that everything we have to, that we do has to be all about simply bringing God glory, and it looks a certain way, right? But if we understand that God is a father... Like when I'm teaching Josh and Zach to ride their bikes or something, or ride a skateboard or play soccer, am I thinking, all right, now, I want you to learn to shoot the soccer ball this way or kick a soccer ball this way so that you bring glory to me. And you show everybody how, you know, superior my gene pool is and how, how good of parents we are. I want, you to, I want you to ride this bike to bring me glory, and I want you to go around the neighborhood telling all the other families what awesome parents we are. Bring me glory through riding this bike. 
<laughs> Only Greg Fry. <laughs> Is that what Mike did to you? <laughs> so obviously that's how Greg grew up, but <laughs> his... <laughs> but you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? But what do we do when it comes to God? How many, how often when you're engaged in music or dancing or art or sports or something, you're like, well, was I really bringing God glory out of this? But what if God is like, I want you to ride this bike because I love watching you enjoy it. I want to just watch you ride. That's glory. There's glory in that. So sorry, Greg. We'll, we'll try to. You guys totally know what I'm talking about, don't you? But do you see how our theology kind of mucks us up a little bit? Kind of, I don't know about you. I am just speaking from my own perspective. But my theology trips me up. And it contaminates what I think God wants to just give me to find life in. I literally had periods of life where I would feel guilty for going to play soccer. Dude, not anymore. Right, Ryan? I love soccer. Ryan and I got to play a lot of soccer together. But, and Seth. So we, we love I love soccer, but I literally would come away from the soccer field being like, oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry because I wasn't thinking about you while I was playing. And I felt guilty for that. I felt like I had to go, like, have a quiet time to make up for my time on the soccer field. And thank, I'm glad that a lot of you are past that. But still, we get kind of sucked back into this contamination thing where God's just like, that was super fun to watch you play. I loved seeing that smile on your face. That's kind of what we're trying to get at. So maybe Jesus, maybe where we find life, who is life? Life is a person. So where that life is, this person is there in our midst, right? I wish we had more time to hear everybody's answers. Isn't it cool that God could kind of like be listening to all these conversations at once and totally engage them and absorb it? Wrap your mind around that. But we're trying to just detox a little bit of some of these views of God that contaminate the pleasure that God wants to just infuse our lives and the planet and our communities with. And obviously I have some work to do in those departments. But yeah, other thoughts? Anything you all want to share that the Holy Spirit's been saying? Anybody else that's like, I have to share this? Yes, Torah. And then we're going to see how we pray for one another. Yeah. Now, and thank you, Torah. And so one thing that will maybe mess with some of our heads a little bit is, is it possible that the temple, the reason Jesus came to shut it all down and all it represented was because it actually was never what he intended? And that the sacrificial system was actually not God's idea, but maybe God's response to something else. We'll talk about that someday. Maybe in January? I'm not going to tell you, so you'll just have to keep hanging around. But just think about that. Maybe, maybe Jesus wasn't shutting down the temple because it was time for a change as much as Jesus was shutting down the temple because he was finally here and was able to actually bring it around to what he originally intended, including these sacrifices that were never God's idea in the first place. He's the temple. And now who's the temple? You are. We are. 